Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Father, I pray that you would teach us the value of your kingdom so that we might endeavor to obtain it at any price. Open our eyes, Lord, as your Son Jesus teaches us through these words. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I had a professor once who said you can learn great lessons from bad examples. In fact, I think sometimes bad examples are the best teachers because you uh, get a very vivid picture of what not to do. And it occurs to me that Jesus understands this because he's not necessarily holding up the behavior of the men in these parables as virtuous. He's pointing to their actions and how they're motivated. I'm not sure if you find treasure hidden in a field, the right thing to do is to cover it up and then buy the field from the owner. I'm not going to suggest to you that that's the way to go, but there's something in that motivation. There's something in the realization that Jesus is pointing to here. In the same way, uh, you may look at the life of a person who is constantly on the hunt for precious jewels, that merchant always looking to make a fortune, and say to yourself, there are greater things in life than chasing after money. And Jesus would agree. And yet in the example of the desire and the motivation of that man, there's a deeper thing going on that's being taught to us. In other words, from these humble, even flawed examples of the way people behave in this life, Jesus is pointing us to a higher spiritual reality, and it's that reality that we want to contemplate. He's telling us about the kingdom, specifically the worth of the kingdom. He's telling us that the kingdom is of incalculable worth, that there's no way to put a price on the kingdom. If you look at the two parables, you can see that in each one you have, let's say, like a a, a two-act structure. There are two moments in each of the parables. So there's the finding of value. That's the first one. And the second one is the giving up in order to obtain it. So in each case, a man recognizes the value of something. And once he's found that value, he acts accordingly. He gives up whatever he has to in order to obtain this precious thing. In the first parable, a man finds treasure hidden in a field, and then he gives up everything that he has in order to obtain it, to buy that field so that he can possess that treasure and make it his own. In the second parable, a merchant finds one pearl of great value, and then he gives up everything else that he has. He liquidates his assets so that he can obtain that one thing because it's so valuable. So there's two moments in each parable, the finding of value and the giving up in order to obtain it. But if there's two moments, you might say they're all unified by a kind of subtext. There's a thing going on. There's a a kind of action that these parables are about. That action is payment. Payment. 
both finding value and giving up to obtain involve the necessity of payment. So the parables illustrate the value of the kingdom. And they do it in this way. They insist that no payment is too high to obtain the kingdom. Because the kingdom is of incalculable worth. No sacrifice is too great to possess the kingdom. Because that's how valuable the kingdom actually is. The question these parables ask us, what would you give up for the kingdom? What would you sacrifice for the kingdom? The implication of Jesus' words is, if you understood the value of the kingdom, then the answer would be everything. That if you understood just how valuable the kingdom that He calls you to is, then there is nothing you would hold on to. There is nothing that you wouldn't give up in order to obtain it. If a greedy man who discovers treasure hidden in a field would do everything to make that treasure his own, if he understands that much, if a merchant who's always doing calculations in his head about how to make maximum profit would give up everything he has in order to obtain this valuable pearl, if he understands that much, then surely the children of the kingdom should be able to understand this as well. If in these humbler examples, we understand what it is to sacrifice in order to obtain something greater, then the sons and daughters of the kingdom, this should be a no-brainer for us. We should understand that there is nothing more valuable than the kingdom. The Apostle Paul demonstrates to us how this understanding works. If you look at the passage that's also in your order of worship from Philippians 3, starting in verse 7, Paul illustrates essentially the life of a believer, a son of the kingdom, who gets the meaning of these parables. He says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Now in Paul's example, he's speaking of spiritual things, not earthly things, but you see the same dynamic at play. Paul found value in what was offered. He writes about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And having found that value, Paul gave up everything in order to obtain it. He says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. That idea of finding is so important. Once you've found the thing of value, then how you act follows naturally. Once you've found the value of the kingdom, nobody has to tell you what to do next. It's obvious. You give up everything in order to obtain it. You make the payments that is necessary. The necessity of payments, again, is what we see here. Paul talking about the payment that he made. The payment, the price, the sacrifices that he made, what he suffered, what he gave up. But that experience did something profound. It changed the way he valued things. The price that he put on things changed. 
He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. When he thought about what he sacrificed, he said, I think of that as rubbish, as trash. It was nothing to me. Because again, in the moment of finding what true value is, the way that you valued everything else before is altered completely. How can a man get rid of everything he has to buy a piece of property? Because once he discovered the treasure hidden there, nothing he had seemed valuable anymore in comparison. It was a no-brainer. Of course he would do that transaction. How would a merchant with, with a supply of pearls of various values liquidate all of them in order to have just one? Only once he discovered the value of the thing. And once he had done that, nothing that he possessed before seemed as valuable as it once had. So that realization of finding, it doesn't just open your eyes to what's really important. It also changes the way you've seen everything else. It, it alters the price tag that you've placed on what you have. There is no dilemma or struggle when it comes to making the sacrifice because seeing the value of what you obtain changes the value of what you give up. Once the value of the kingdom is known, then giving up everything to make the payments is easy. It's easy. It makes sense. So the key we might say for us is finding the value of the kingdom. If you can do that, if you can see the true value of the kingdom, then everything else follows naturally. That makes it sound so easy. If you just saw the value of the kingdom, you'd give up everything in order to obtain it. But we don't do that. We don't do that because we don't value the kingdom. We don't know the value of the kingdom. That's our problem, let's say. Our problem is that we don't know the value of the kingdom. We don't know the value of what we've been promised, of what we've been called to. Jesus recognizes that as our problem, and you can see here how it is that he's able to put his finger on it. These are parables for people with this problem. Right? These parables are specifically for people who struggle to see the value of the kingdom. We don't see that the kingdom is buried treasure. We don't see that it's this valuable pearl. Instead, to us, it looks very different than that. But how does Jesus know? How does he know that this is our problem? Well, he knows by looking at what we do, right? Because if we did value the kingdom rightly, there's nothing we wouldn't give up to obtain it, but we're not doing that. We're not sacrificing things. We're holding on to them. We're hoping at best to have the kingdom and everything that we already have. But, but if we have to choose, it's not clear that the choice we're going to make is the kingdom. And we're not sacrificing for the kingdom. And if we're not sacrificing for the kingdom, then it follows that we don't know the value of the kingdom. Because if we did, the rest would flow naturally. Do you see what I'm saying? It all comes back to knowing the value of the kingdom. And of course, that comes down to how do you measure value? Like how do you judge the value of anything? Some of you are pretty good at this. You've been successful in life, in business. You know how to balance not just a checkbook, but, but the accounts. Right? So you understand the way that this works. You understand how things are valued. 
We might say that uh, things are valued, the, the value of things is measured according to what you're willing to give up in order to obtain them, but there's a more succinct way of putting that. As an economist would tell you, things are worth what people will pay for them. Things are worth what people will pay for them. I've learned this lesson the hard way on eBay because it turns out when I try to sell stuff that I have to other people on the internet, I value those things differently than they do. To me, they're all priceless and people should be willing to pay top dollar and to everybody else, they're, they're trash and they should get them for, for basically free. And whenever I complain, whenever I say the world is fundamentally unjust because people won't pay me top dollar for my used stuff, someone's always there to point out, you know, Mark, things are worth what people will pay for them. This is true even for precious things. Gold, diamonds, jewels, all of that are worth what people will pay for them. In difficult times when the price of things go up, we suddenly see this illustrated, right? There are things that, that are valuable that, that people won't pay mo- money for, but there's also things that are essential that we have to pay more for, and we have no choice because we need them, right? Things are worth what people will pay for them. Is that true? Yes and no. There is an economic logic to it. It's true in a subjective sense. And yet, there are many inherently worthy things in life that we don't value correctly. In that sense, it's not true. There are a lot of things that are valuable that people won't pay for. Value cannot simply be measured in the willingness to obtain at any price. We say the best things in life are free. Well, that's true, but it's because they have to be. Because most of the best things in life are things people don't want to pay for. They're not willing to pay for because they don't see how those things get them ahead in life. We're surrounded by great truth, great beauty that no one would ever sacrifice for or pay for because we don't value things like that, because we don't know what's valuable, because we don't know what's best or what's good for us. All too often when it comes to assessing the true value of things, we're like the crowd later in Matthew's Gospel who's given the choice between freeing Barabbas or Jesus, and for them the choice is easy. For them, they see the value, and when you see the value of things, the rest follows naturally, and they choose Barabbas because he's the one they value. They do not value Jesus. And all too often, we find ourselves in the same situation. Our willingness to pay doesn't guarantee the value of what we sacrifice for, but it does reveal our perception of the value, right? It does show what we think the value is. And by the same token, our unwillingness to sacrifice reveals that we don't value the thing in question. Not that it's not valuable, but that we don't value it. Because if we did, we would sacrifice for it. You think about that in everyday life. So many examples of the way that we demonstrate that we don't value something because we won't sacrifice for it. If you go back in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says a, a man should, should leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. Well, a man may say that he wants to love his wife, but if he won't do that... If he won't make that sacrifice, does he really value her? No. He may say he values her, 
but he shows by his actions that he doesn't because he's unwilling to sacrifice. We say we value all sorts of things. We value security. We value integrity. We value truth. But we will not sacrifice for those things. We won't give things up in order to obtain them. And if that's the case, it's fair to conclude that whatever we say, we don't value them rightly. Because you can tell how we value them based on what we give up in order to obtain them. And then Christ comes and He says, if you value My kingdom, then you will sacrifice for My kingdom. If you value everything that you've been promised in Me, then you will sacrifice everything for Me. We hear those words and we say, yes, Lord, I believe. I will do it. But we don't do it. We don't sacrifice. So the question is, what will you give up? What will you give up? It's Lent, right? At Lent, the question that we're supposed to annoy other people with is the question, what are you giving up for Lent? I hate that question. I hate it. Uh, someone asked me this week, what are you giving up for Lent? And, and I said, uh, vegetables. Um, <laughs> it wasn't a big sacrifice. But uh, it, it's always annoying, right? Right, Because no matter what you've given up, if you've given up anything, uh, it, it never feels good enough. It never feels noble enough. Or you can't think of, of anything good to say. What have you sacrificed? What discipline have you introduced in your life? The thing is, it is the right question for this season. And it's not just the right question for this season. It's a right question for every season. What are you giving up? What are you sacrificing? We really do have to ask this question of ourselves. And I would say for us as a church, for Grace as a church, right now in this moment, this is a question we have to ask ourselves. What are we giving up? What are we willing to sacrifice? Because yeah, we're at a moment in the life of our church where a lot of exciting things are happening. There are a lot of things on our horizon that, that fill me with great joy and also great fear. In fact, last week, uh, my friend Luke, who's another pastor, was, was in town when we had the blizzard, and uh, he got trapped with me, and so we had a lot of conversations as we were uh, shoveling snow and things like that. And, and I confided in him that, that I'm afraid. I'm afraid of the future. I'm afraid of the next few weeks. I'm afraid of the next few months. I'm afraid of the future of grace. Not because things aren't good, but because change is involved. And change can be hard. The outcomes can be unpredictable. There's something really comfortable about just keeping things the way that they are. So that when I think about the future, there's a little bit of trepidation. I'm also afraid because we're at a moment in life where we really do need to sacrifice we really do need to give things up in order to obtain something that is promised. And that's a very difficult thing to ask of anyone. It's certainly not something I enjoy asking people to do, to say, I, I want you to sacrifice. So I confided this to Luke, and he said, no, don't think that way. He said, sacrifice is good. It's easy for pastors talking to other pastors to say things like that, right? Sacrifice is good, he said. But he knew it from experience because he's had to go through similar 
kinds of challenges. He said to me, the church needs to sacrifice. The church needs to be called to sacrifice. So growing as a church means growing into what Christ has for us, and that means sacrifice. That in order to be who God calls us to be, we have to be uncomfortable because we need to be uncomplacent. Because what we've been called to isn't comforts and it isn't complacency. It's growth, and that requires sacrifice. When we're called on to make sacrifices, we're reminded of what really matters. We're reminded that the kingdom is worth it, and we desperately need to be reminded. We need to be reminded that this is worth sacrificing for. When we're comfortable and complacent, the gospel of the kingdom is circling around the question, like, what do I get? When we're comfortable and complacent, the gospel is like, like what God gives me. But if you long for more depth, if you really long for more depth, then you need to hear what I'm about to say. Following Jesus is not about getting. Following Jesus is about giving, and it's about giving up. It's not about surrender, but it is about sacrifice. It's about sacrifice. If we're going to grow into the church that Christ is calling us to be, then you will have to sacrifice. You will have to give things up. Which means that right now more than ever, we desperately need to see the value of the kingdom. Because it's only when you see the value of what you're making sacrifices for that you're willing to make the sacrifice. Because it's only then that the way that you value things changes. The more we see the value of the kingdom, the more the things that we're clinging to will look like trash, and the more we'll be willing to give them up. The more we see it, the less we'll care about what we have, and the more we'll give so that we can be like him, so that we can be found in him. The man who buys the field full of hidden treasure and the merchant who sells everything to obtain the priceless pearl, they're just metaphors. They're just symbols, but they're symbols of people who have found the value of Christ's kingdom and are therefore quick to give up whatever it takes to obtain it. That's the people that we need to be. That's the person I long to be. Not the person I claim to be, but the person I long to be is the person who values the kingdom rightly. But of course, the value of the kingdom is shown to us only by Christ. No one values the kingdom more than Christ does. No one can value the kingdom more than Christ himself does, and no one gives more for the kingdom than Christ himself has. Jesus found value in us, and then gave up everything to obtain us, making payment for our sins with his life. He might have said, looking at us, they're worth a lot to me, but not so much that I'd lower myself to become one of them, because that's something we often tell ourselves about things we say we value. But that's not what Jesus said. 
He did not hold on to his lofty position. Instead, he emptied himself. He didn't think that equality with God was a thing to be grasped or held on to as Dan preached not too long ago. But instead, he gave that up and became one of us. He sacrificed that to obtain us. He might have said, they are worth enough to me to become one of them, but not so much that I would become the least of them. Not so much that I would endure humiliation and torture and pain and give my life for them. But he didn't say that either. Instead, he poured his body and his blood out on the altar to atone for our sins. He gave and he gave and he gave. He did it quickly and he did it joyfully, not grasping anything that he was giving up, but instead willingly making the sacrifice, making the payment because he saw the value of the thing he sought to obtain. In other words, you. For Jesus, if the kingdom could only be obtained by taking on human life and then giving that life up for us, he was quick to do it. Because he judged us more valuable than everything he had to give up in order to obtain us. And when you consider what he gave up, that is mind-boggling to reflect on. For Jesus, the hidden treasure is right here. For Jesus, the priceless pearl is in this room. You are the treasure. You are the pearl. He obtained you by giving himself up as payments. So when next time you hear somebody say things are only worth what people will pay for them, you can say amen. That's exactly right. What is the kingdom worth? What are you worth? Only what Christ was willing to pay for you, which was everything. So the easy solution here for us would be to just open our eyes to just value the kingdom rightly. That's all we have to do, is start seeing the value of the kingdom rightly. If we do that, then everything will fall into place. If we just see the value of the kingdom rightly, then like Jesus, we would sacrifice everything for the sake of the kingdom. If we could just see the kingdom rightly and value it rightly, then like Paul, we wouldn't regret anything that we had to sacrifice, because it would mean nothing compared to what we gained in Christ. But it's a lot easier to say value the kingdom rightly than it is to do it. It's a lot easier to say, hey, open your eyes to the value of the kingdom than actually to open them. It's easier to talk about sacrifices than it is to make sacrifices. So what do we do? Look, the months ahead are going to be a test for us as a church. Obviously, every day is a test for each one of us as a follower of Christ, but together, collectively, these days will be a test. We're talking about sacrifice now. But we don't know the answer to the question whether we will make sacrifices. Right now, we're just talking. The test will be whether we actually do it. Will we actually give up whatever it takes to grow into Christ's vision for us? And all we have to do is see the kingdom rightly. That's hard, but let me suggest that there is a way. There's a way to start. There's a way to get close. There's something we can do. It's, it's 
difficult to just switch realities and value everything the way that we should, but there is a way that we can approach this. We can start seeing things rightly, even if we aren't completely there yet. There's a method to, as we say in the mission statement, start finding our way. There is a way that we can do this. It's simple. Let's value what Christ values. It's as simple as that. When you have any doubt about what's worth what, any doubt about what you should give up and what you shouldn't, what really matters, let's value what Christ values. Let's care about the things he cares about, not the things we care about. And the more we can do that, the closer we get to a right value of things. If you're not sure what really matters, if you're not sure what's truly valuable, then look at what he values and try to do that. Look at what it is he sacrifices for and try to sacrifice for that. I don't want to sacrifice to gain things that Jesus himself gave up for something greater. I want to sacrifice for what he sacrificed for. Let that be our goal. If he gave up everything so that we might be united to him, then let's give up whatever it takes to be like him. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.